Hi, listening to the Trossex World Apothecary Podcast, and I'm your host, Rox. Today I'm interviewing Max Dashu. She's a women's historian and author of Pagans and Witches, Women in European Folk Religion, and she has an, an online website, Suppressed Histories Archives, which she's been collating since the 1970s with lots of information and courses and talks and podcasts all about women's history. Um, we would, would be a good place to start would just be talking about um, like who you are and about this, what got you interested in this subject. Sure. Um, well, I, I just turned 70. I was born in West Chicago, Illinois. I uh, went, I got a scholarship to Ivy League College and I soon left because it was really impossible to do women's history at that time in 1969. And I undertook to instead research as an independent scholar. And so I started the Suppressed Histories Archives. Initially, I wasn't, I didn't say I'm starting an archives, but I felt really from the beginning that it was important to document the evidence I found because the hostility to the whole entire field of women's history, which didn't even exist formally at that time, was so great that I knew that I was going to have to authenticate every single claim that I made. And that's one reason why I got into teaching with images because using the cultural record beyond the elite male ruling class, you know, um, written record, that's where a lot of the, uh, that's where a lot of the documentation of women's history is mm-hmm. and of the spiritual traditions as well particularly the targeted ones. So I got into using images as a way to take it beyond just pieces of written information or even my opinions, but just to allow the iconography to speak for itself. Yeah. You know? And like that, that's been very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I read, you wrote something saying that I'm just going to read you a little quote from what you, what you said. You said, through the church, though the church described them as sorcerers, the wise women, herbalists, midwives and elders belong to a spiritual tradition rooted in the land. So I just wondered if you could talk a bit more about that and about the history of women healers in Europe in particular. Yes. Well, you know, the Roman Empire came along and, you know, conquered a lot, a large part of Western Europe. And in the wake of that, you have uh, the Christianization of the empire, em- empire. And so the authoritarianism of the previous empire was sort of carried over into the institutional church. And so initially healers were still practicing because they were it, you know, there weren't even any medical schools or, or, or uh, official doctors at that time. They were the practitioners, but there was a hostility on the part of the clergy toward their beliefs as well as their methods. And so very early on, you have this being talked about 
as demonic, as devil worship, you know, invocations to spirits of the land or goddesses or ancestors were ruled out by the priesthood as being forbidden practices. And so there was a long war over this, a long cultural war that went on for, you know, well over a millennium, never really completely ended. And so if you look at the early penitential books, that's one place that I've used to track the way the repression played out because they would actually write out manuals that are catalogs of pagan beliefs and healing practices, divination, many different things that were all holistically part of the cultures, the multiple ethnic cultures in Europe at that time. And so you will see, for example, denunciations in France of the areole. And so this is both women and men who are diviners who are practicing at that period, we're talking about like around 700 in the woods, people are meeting them, not in, in town, but you know, secretly in the woods because this is, you know, and also because it's a land-based practice, but they are using a mixture of herbal medicine and also amulets like tying herbs onto the body as a way of shifting the energy field as part of a healing process or even a protective magic uh, practice. And the church, the priesthood did not like this. They tried very hard to stamp it out, but the common people, especially at that early date, refused to give it up. This is what they had. This is what worked for them. It's what their ancestors had done. And they believed in it. They loved it. They valued it. And so they hung on tight. And it's really striking to see how much of that was preserved over the whole thousand years of the witch persecutions, you know, because that that process took, it was a lot longer than just the height of the witch craze that we normally hear about. And beginning with those old penitential books and the denunciation of herbalists who were giving potions to cause sterility to women, not that the women were asking for contraception. Mm -hmm. And so the priesthood described this as drinking still sterility. And it was very often accompanied with ceremonies. So there could be tying of knots, which they referred to as ligatura. And women, you know, at that time, infant mortality was very high. There was a lot of hunger, feudalism was beginning. Uh, life was very hard and women desperately needed not to be bearing a child every year, mm -hmm. you know, to, to wear their bodies out in, in this constant childbearing. And so this was a crucial need that the herbalist was meeting. And the priesthood's attitude toward this was so many potions, so many murders. You know, they defined preventing birth as infanticide. Mm -hmm. And this, this is the beginning of this anti-contraceptive policy of the church, which waxed and wanes. And there were periods where it wasn't as uh, militant. And then it toward in modern times it, it again became very militant but this was something that the wise woman provided women something they really needed and also uh, amenagogues were used which would bring on menstruation so as a way of terminating a very early pregnancy they would give them herbs in order to free them of unwanted pregnancies and yeah. I suppose the women, they'd also be the healers in other ways as well, wouldn't, wouldn't they? Yes. Well, there's, there's many, there's a whole range of practices. And I got out some of my notes. This is one of the unpublished volumes that 
I have in my file drawer. I don't know when I'm going to ever get this one out, but in the period of the 15 and 1600s in Scotland, there's quite a lot of evidence for wise women working with herbs and other kinds of uh, ceremonies, basically animacy, working with the indwelling spirit that's present in nature as a means of healing and transformation. And so there are records and they're especially strong in the Orkneys and the Shetlands where the witch trials started a little bit later and the culture was off the mainland. Had I think that helped preserve some of the old, the old customs, but there's this constant reference to healers who were working with water taken from the crest of waves, three waves or nine waves. They would go to the shore and they would take this, this cresting water and they would use it to bathe people with or to pour over them. So this is what I'm referring to as animacy, using the, the vitality present in powerful elements of nature, in this case, the seawater. Or they would take three stones and they would wash them in that water or in other water from a spring or a south one running fountain. And they would rub the bodies of the sick people with these stones. Or they would recommend that their patients in addition to whatever other energetic treatments they were doing or the amulets they were giving to them to wear would recommend that people walk around a certain lake. So a practice of circumambulation around the waters and this is something that, that turns up in the trial records in the 1620s in Orkney and in Shetland. And some of these women wound up being burned at the stake. You know, and one of the common accusations that was used against them was giving herself out to have knowledge and skill. The fairy faith element comes in there too. And I think that's something that is an important element, not only in Britain and Ireland, but there are aspects of it throughout Europe under different names. There's a scholar, uh, Arthur Evans Wentz, wrote a book called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Lands that you can actually get uh, open source now, PDF online, that documents not only those beliefs, which are, you know, cover a whole variety of ceremonies and folk customs and many, many different elements, the fairies dance and abduction by the fairies and fairies coming to a person and say, you're going to be a healer now, and this is how you do. But there is also what, what I love about the book is he, he goes to Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Cornwall, and Britannia, and interviews people in all those places about the local folk religion and, and folk medicine. And one of the things he came away with, because this is over 100 years ago, is that, pardon me? When did you say this was written? Um, I'm not sure of the exact date, but I would say it would have been in the late 1800s. Okay. Pretty sure about that. Um, one of the most striking findings that he had, which is very different than people's sort of disnified idea about the fairies, is that the fairies were, among other things, the ancestral dead. Well, this is a European expression of ancestor reverence mm -hmm. that, um, you know, and the idea that like Bessie Dunlop, the midwife, you know, or, or others of the women who withstood 
witch, witch trials in Scotland and in other places spoke about how they initially became healers and there was a dream or an appearance of someone from the realm of the dead who would become their helper and would instruct them and tell them this is how you heal. So this is a parallel in Europe to something that we know from Mongolia and Chile and South Africa, many parts of the world mm -hmm. in, in the shamanic uh, practices. So one of the things about uncovering these European core traditions, these ancestral based traditions is that you start to see the commonality with the rest of the world. And this is something that we've become so separated yeah. from in, yeah. in, in, in the recent times in the colonial era. Yes. Yeah. This idea that Europe is very different. Yeah. And I think people here and across, I suppose, in America as well, we're trying to seek that this kind of authentic cultural, like spiritual practice. And we don't, we feel disconnected, I think, from it yeah. because we're kind of looking out to maybe like Native Americans or other shamanic um, practices and sort of trying to emulate them, thinking we maybe right. our own. But yeah, that's interesting. Well, and then that, that's led to a lot of appropriation and a lot of mm -hmm. uh, conflict because, uh, you know, the native people don't necessarily appreciate not only that the appropriation is taking place, but often in these very market-based ways, like people selling sweat lodges and things like that, Yeah, you know, that they aren't really authorized to do. And, and so one of the interesting things, because when I wrote Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, I, I was attempting to assemble a body of documentation about what are the authentic European traditions. Mm -hmm. Because we're looking at a ripped web of culture, that process of Christianization, very hostile takeover in many ways, uh, of all these ethnic cultures in Europe, because there wasn't a single European culture. But that process displaced and, and tried to delete. It didn't entirely succeed, but in many ways, you know, they, they took out large chunks. And so for us, the task is to take all these torn strands and try to reassemble them. You know, we're never going to get all of that back, but we need our guideposts at least yeah. in, in trying to see what was authentic. What was it like? Because, you know, there's a lot of people nowadays who are making stuff up. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's a great line Monique Wittig has about, uh, you know, recovering the lost women's past. And she says, try to remember, try to remember, but if you can't remember, then failing that, invent. <laughs> so I like that quote. But, you know, I think that the, the problem of authenticity is, is real because you want to really, you know, there's so much new age overlay mm -hmm. to things, you know, and that brings with it problems, not only the monetization, but projections and the pornification of goddesses and witches and medicine women that you see all over the internet. Uh, you know, it, it's a distorting lens. So we have to try and taste what is the authentic original culture like, whether we're looking at the Völler in Scandinavia or the Libistre in English culture, you know, all of the different healing traditions in Russia and Spain and, and the Germanic world to see what, what was it like? How did they do it? What was the foundational philosophy the natural philosophy of it. And what were the practices? And what did they say about the herbs? And how was their herbal knowledge different 
from this very linear objectifying, you know, use that we have from sort of quote unquote Western medicine, mm -hmm. you know, that there was a relationship with herbs. And there again, we see the commonality with native North America among other places where, you know, we know of European chants, invocations to the herbs. So for example, in England, a little more than a thousand years ago, some Anglo-Saxon scribe wrote down uh, an herbal manual called the Laknunga. And it's, it's Christianized because at that point, nobody literate was going to give you anything but a Christianized version. But nevertheless, pieces of, of the old heathen belief come through. And so there's one section of the Laknunga that I talk about in the book in, in the chapter on healing that is called the nine herbs charm. And charm is from a Latin root that means song. So these are incantations, invocations of the plants. And the very first one they call on is mugwort, which they call una, oldest of herbs. And a lot of reverence all over Europe for mugwort. We're talking about Artemisia family, yeah. which is also used in China, which is also used in native North America. Uh, desert sage is Artemisia. Moxibustion uh, in acupuncture. Some people may have had that treatment, smudging with with, uh, with mugwort uh, from uh, as a treatment. Mm -hmm. So there's these invocations that were being sung, and we just have little pieces of them, you know, fragments here and there of healing charms. There's another one that survives in Germany, in the back of a hymnal. There's like a couple pages that are known as the Merseberg charms and they're calling on the old uh, heathen deities for healing, you know, for, for curing of a sprain. So we have a lot of recovery to do. So do you think they would, when they were like collecting the herbs, they'd have been, you know, like singing to them and chanting yeah. to them and things? Yeah. Yeah. And we have evidence of that going on still in France in the 1800s. There, there are writers that actually interviewed herbalists and actually saw them, like in, like in France, there, this herbalist took the guy out in, in, to gather herbs with her. And she, go, she kneels down when she finds the plant, it's a peony, and she says, good day, Holy Queen Pivoine, Holy Queen Pe Peony. And so she speaks to her and tells her of her beauty and the same practice in Romania, same, same time frame, maybe early 1900s, where a writer, was able to accompany these women and watch how they would go out into the woods and they would, in this case, not only would they sprinkle offerings into the ground while gathering the plant, and not only would they speak to the plant, but they would actually tie a ribbon around the plant and let her know that she had been designated, you know, and they would say, this is what we need you for. We need you for this healing purpose. And then they would come back and gather the, the plant in a ceremony collective group of women doing this okay. uh, with mandrake in that case. And, and the same source also talks about a healing method in Romania of using sacred cords. And so you have the cord and then you tie knots in the cord. And so this would be a process of binding up disease. And they would use the sacred number nine and they would count down from nine that the disease would be bound and it would be bound again until finally it would be banished out. So there's almost like a hypnotic 
aspect to some of these ceremonies where it's a transformative process for the person being healed to hear this and to experience in some way a transformation of their body-mind through this ceremonial. It's nothing herbal about that particular practice, but it could be used in conjunction mm -hmm. with herbal treatments or perhaps uh, holy stones, you know, the healer placing a serpent stone on certain parts of her body or rubbing her body with it. Interesting. Very holistic. Yeah. We've kind of got, I suppose we've got remnants of things like that when you, we've got things like the hot stone massages and different things, I suppose. Yeah. Remnants yeah. of it come through. It, a lot of it comes through because people really, really, it worked for them. This, mm -hmm. is the, this is the core thing. It worked for them and they loved the traditions and so they kept them going. And, and the other thing I want to say about the commonality and the appropriation is that we had sweat lodges in Europe. We'll just call them sweat houses. You know, so in Ireland, there was the Tach and Alish, which literally means sweat house. And theirs were made out of stone. And you also have stone ones. Do you know about these? They're, they're in uh, Galicia and in, uh, in Portugal and, and northwestern Spain. They had the Pedras Pedras Formosas, beautiful stones, they were called later, later generations called them that. Mm -hmm. But they are carved portals into sweat houses. So the stone structure has an initial chamber, which would be where you would remove your clothing. Then there's this doorway with a very low opening that you have to get down on your hands and knees to crawl through, just like the Native American sweat house in that way, keeping the heat in. And then you crawl through and you're in the sweat house chamber. And then the final part of the, the structure is a furnace where they're heating it up. And so these are, you know, there's about nine examples that I know of that have survived. But the portal stone was beautifully carved. And at least one example I know, there's an image, a very abstract goddess image with her arms and legs spread out. And you would enter right between her legs to go into this womb-like chamber okay. of, of the sauna. And of course the Finns had their sauna. We can see medieval uh, Czech manuscripts showing people inside the, a sweat house where they're very much like the Finnish sauna with the high benches and they're whisking their bodies with bundles of birch leaves, mm -hmm. which the Russians and the Finns still do mm -hmm. you know, to stimulate the circulation. Yeah. And so there's a lot of this, and it was very much present in Russia because the old name, they call it Banya now, but the old name for the sweat house was Božina, which means it's from the same root as the word for God and goddess. It's, it's the divine place. And like the Finns, their rules were, there can be no conflict, much less violence inside that space. It's a sacred space for healing and for peace. It's interesting that it still survived in in Finland as as being so I mean it's so important in their their like well being in their life but it's totally you know we don't have anything like that really here in the same way anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean the Irish had them, but they were desacralized, and you know because if you're living in the, any of the northern countries, really, you're not going to be bathing in the river in in the full of winter for one thing yeah. but also people tend to get rheumatism and arthritis in those climates mm -hmm. damp and cold and so 
it was a treatment for the Irish. It was a treatment for uh, rheumatism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was something that was necessary, but it got stripped of all of its ceremonial and, and spiritual content because of this whole process of forcible Christianization, you know, that, that wasn't able to survive there. It did survive in, in Finland where there are sauna chants to old mother Kave. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, the, the Scandinavian countries, because they're so far on the periphery of Europe, escaped a lot of the longer term repression starts earlier in places like France, Italy, and Spain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Christianization happens latest of all in the Northeast and the Baltic countries. So that places like Lithuania retained their, their old religion and the folk practices, the healing included, the saunas, the bathhouse included much longer and the bathhouse kept its spiritual and ceremonial side. Interesting. And uh, why do you think it was that, that like women's history has been suppressed so much? It's a combination of things. I think that there is a power, the power aspect is there. There's the, the powers that be don't want women to know that things can be different. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole attempt to put across the idea that it's always been like this. And not only that, but that actually women, you shouldn't complain because it was much worse. You know, you've got those cartoons about cavemen dragging women away by their hair with a club, you know, and that actually is a complete invention. We have no evidence of that kind of violence in, in the Paleolithic era or of patriarchy, really. In fact, just au contraire, you have all of the sacred icons are of the grandmother ancestors. So um, there's, there's this... There's a treatment of women's history as a threat to male domination, male privilege, male power. There is, there is the religious element, which is intertwined with that because the dominant religions are enforcing uh, male control as a, as a religious principle. And so they, they serve that purpose. And they're so authoritarian that nothing else can be allowed to exist. And in a sense, that's true of history too. Nothing else can be allowed. When, when I was in college and the reason I got out of there was because it was literally a joke, women's history, to even raise it. They, they would actually joke and laugh about it. You know, well, well that's going to be a short book, that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, and then there's another part of it, which is not only ignorance, but not wanting to know the the fact that the gatekeepers believe in their own doctrines, their own ideologies, makes it so that they they don't they can't they can't even bring themselves to look in that direction. You know, they're not even entertaining the idea of matricultural societies mm -hmm. because they believe that male domination is transhistorical. It's always been true universally for all human societies, according to them. You know, and if that's their belief system, then they rest very comfortably inside that, that uh, dogma of theirs, and they simply don't look for it. And if it comes across their screen, they ignore it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not like, like women are looking around because we have this hunger to know, mm -hmm. you know, it can't have always been like this. We have some kind of a gut knowledge yeah. that this is not who we are. It was imposed. So we're looking to find anything that shows a different kind of historical record. Mm 
you know, and this is what I've been doing for the past half century and what many women have been doing, recovering pieces. And there's a lot of different ways that we do that. But the gatekeepers would just let those things pass. And so in doing my research, often what I would find is I would get a fragment and it's like, wow, this is a good fragment. And, you know, it would be presented in such a way as if they were telling you the whole story, but they weren't, they were only giving you the one piece. Mm-hmm. And only afterwards would I find, oh no, there's a whole other piece to this story. Actually, the original source says this, this, and this. And often they don't even give you the most important part of it. And so it becomes this process of trying to reassemble the puzzle from all these split and broken pieces. It's, you know, I think that the the level on which, I don't put it as a conspiracy. I think it's really an unconscious desire not to know the the denial is something that's very deep-seated that many of these scholars aren't even conscious of yeah it's probably just something that's i suppose taken for granted now that that's just how it is yeah and they all they all reaffirm each other yeah so then then we we had a period where there was a lot of sparks flew because here come these women you know i mean maria gimbutas for example i mean she got so much vicious pushback a lot of really character assassination level of uh, negation that anything that she brought fat forward had any value. And especially it was, it was considered very threatening that she would try to do some kind of integration between archeology, span history, and orature, the folk tradition. What would the folk tradition, what kind of insights could that offer mm-hmm. to the archeological record that were, were uncovering you know so that was her question and i don't think that you have to agree with all of her interpretations about bird goddesses or whatever to see that that she was dealing with something that fundamentally contradicted the narrative of history that we've been given Mm -hmm. you know and and that she herself had been given because she begins as a, a bronze age archaeologist and you know it's war and it's social stratification and there's all of this violence and it looks pretty male dominated women seem very secondary in in those worlds Mm -hmm. but then when she actually comes across the neolithic era in with southeastern europe in the balkans and begins to see peaceful societies without fortifications without weapons other than hunting weapons living for centuries and even millennia in a very stable way and creating beautiful ceramic art and farming and a whole rich ceremonial culture that's evidenced by their artifacts. She was on to something and she, she documented it, you know, with great uh, dedication mm-hmm. that, and she's been vindicated. Some of her theories, particularly her, her uh, historically and linguistically based, archeologically based theory about the origin of Indo-Europeans has been uh, given a lot of new credence from the genome studies that are actually showing that the region she designated as the Indo-European homeland probably was, okay. you know, the Indo-European speakers. So I, I don't really want to uh, stay on Gimbutas though, because I'm just saying that there's just a lot of clapback of, mm-hmm. of really harsh ridicule in the, in the academic world toward other perspectives that say, well, what if we looked at it this way? 
you know, and what about these pieces of information? Because we have people who are still arguing that there could never have been any matriarchal cultures, you know, in the archaeological record, even though living societies like the Moswa in China or the islanders in Vanatini, way off the coast of Australia, variety of different cultures, the Pueblos and the Six Nations of the Iroquois, many, many societies still have those social systems. They have in many cases been decimated by conquest, mm -hmm. you know, but I, there's no point really to or arguing whether such society, society, whether such societies could ever exist because they exist. Yeah. They exist in recent time. So what's the point of this argument? Yeah. So it just flies against everything that they, they want it to be or what they believe, I guess, even though it's right there. <laughs> Yeah, and you know they can believe what they want, but the the fact that they they treat everyone who who is actually documenting uh, or falsifying what they believe, treating treating the feminist archaeologists or or historians as, I mean, it's it's kind of like one of those things. It's it's a reversal. So they're believing what they want to believe, but they're accusing us of believing what we want to believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, very Trumpian, actually. <laughs> So, no, I mean, because we all knew that we were having to climb a very steep hill with all of this while we carry all this evidence up the hill. And, and that's why I feel like it's, it was always a necessity to document all your evidence because it will be challenged strenuously. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we've, we've made some inroads on that. And are you still researching into um, women's history? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's what I do all the time. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> what I do, you know, and in a, in a lot of different angles. So I'm looking at archaeology. I'm looking at the iconography of the female divine, of the ancestral traditions in in uh, archaeology, but also in more recent wooden sculpture. I'm looking at sacred symbols in ceramic painting from really old cultures, and then also. Really, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to unearth all the indigenous histories mm -hmm. because what we have had up till very recently is all external accounts by the conquerors with their characterizations of those societies. So now we're starting to see indigenous narratives emerge on, in their own right. They're, they're coming into print. They're starting to be visible through digital media. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that was much harder to access even, even 50 years ago, you know, because there are, there are a lot of ways that the lid gets slammed down. Where the, the areas, I mean, I have a couple areas of concentration that I really, I think are important. And one is, I'm calling them matricultures just to avoid arguing all the time about, uh, you know, some fantasy of a reversal of male domination, which has never existed, you know, but really an egalitarian matrilineal societies or bilateral societies, but ones that are not policing women's sexuality in order to enforce descent in the male line, basically. That, that's, your, that's patriarchy. Uh, all the female punishments that are, are enforcing male domination. So the history of patriarchy, the history of matricultures, and also the sacred traditions. What are the, what are the philosophies? What are the spiritual philosophies of all these human cultures. What, what can we know about that? You know, what can we learn by comparing them? And, uh, you know, so goddess veneration was like an early 
focus for me. And gradually over time, I began to realize that the, this is a real wide spectrum that also has to do with the spirits of the land and the water and the ancestors. And there's a lot of different ways we can name the realm of the sacred. So we have a language problem here. Adrian Rich had a poem that was called Dream of a Common Language. Because a lot of times people, especially from different ethnicities and cultures, are kind of talking past each other because we don't have a common language, you know, in the sense of even the concepts or what do the concepts mean? You know, so uh, for example, the way that shaman has been commandeered and marketed mm -hmm. by people, you know, and all the controversies over uh, figures like Lynn Andrews and it sounds like there's a lot of um, commonality between the, the spiritual practices across the world. Yes. Well, that, that's what I'm saying. You know, there's, 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 there's a tremendous amount of commonality. I did a, a video called Woman Shaman, the Ancients. Mm -hmm. That was my attempt to really gather together a really international view of women in the sphere of the sacred, but especially the ecstatic aspects of that. So not necessarily so much priestesses in temples, although it could be, but actually how do, how do women access the sacred and how does embodiment interact with that? Because in the patriarchal religions, there's often this severing of spirit and soul from body. Mm -hmm. yeah. And in the ecstatic cultures, you are able to access altered states of consciousness, or you could call it a deep spiritual union. In those states, you are able to know things and experience things, to travel in the spirit, to, uh, you know, they talk about shape-shifting. There's a lot of these themes that are very global. Mm -hmm. The idea of spirit flight, the idea of ancestral spirit helpers, uh, the kinds of offerings that are made, incantation, and dancing and drumming as ways to either individually, like a, an individual shaman or medicine person, or collectively perform transformative rites that could bring rain, they could be for healing, they could be simply the, the harvest rite that happens you know, on the spiral of the calendar every, every, every year at this time. You know? But the, the altered states are something that gives us access to a fuller part of our being. This is something that Western Civ has specialized in choking out of us, you know, making us sit in rows as children for hours and hours every day. And all, all the kinds of physical policing that are an unconscious rule in Western Civ, you know, one of the, one of the patriarchal ruling societies on the planet. And so what is lost by that? And what in turn can we, if we, if we look at this and go back and say, well, what is the human birthright as far as sacred dance is concerned? Or, you know, serpent iconography, what's that all about? Because so often it has to do with healing and transformation and birth and death and ancestral presences and, and the sacred waters. You know, there's all these meanings attached to things. So part of the study is looking at the symbols and the commonalities around the symbols, the commonalities around spiritual practices, which recur and recur and recur all over the planet. Mm -hmm. And 
then also the way in, in history, politically, the, th the threat to authoritarian power that that kind of wisdom represents. And so you have not only the European feudal states and, and monarchies trying to repress witches, but you have Chinese repression of the Taoists. And, and you do have various kinds of, of persecutory uh, repression under the so-called great religions, because there can only be one truth and only one path to truth according to those models. Yeah. And so that, that, that it's, it's, it's authoritarian and it's, it's monolithic, it's, it's totalitarian. And like, and then I guess that that's how you know, which which is the name, which and pagans and stuff has become such a, a sort of derogatory term, hasn't it? And just something that, yeah. and I guess bef I think I read in your book that before that it wasn't. It was much more of a kind of revered term, kind of meaning more like a a healer or something. Yeah, it it went through a lot of transformations. The um, it got demonized, and you know they they introduced fear around that and you know these are the evildoers these are the people who harm other people and you know this was a demonization of female power as, as it played out in Europe and in other places too uh, you see similar dynamics going on in China by the Tang dynasty the Wu shamans are pretty much um, being driven out who had been so important even at the levels at the ruling levels of the culture in earlier millennia but um, which but one of the one of the finds, you know, there's certain things you run across them, and it's like, oh, this is such an important piece. And one of the things I found that I just it was just spoke, it spoke volumes, is that there was a penitential book written in France in Latin, and it was pretty much par for the course. These these penitential manuals would, you know, weigh in, inveighing against people who revere trees and pray at springs and light candles at fountains and you know basically the the animacy of the spiritual practice of that time of going to the land mm -hmm. and seeking wisdom and guidance and healing on the land so this one passage the anglo-saxon translator of this penitential book this is like a thousand years ago left the original form of the verse which says that witches were counseling people to bring their offerings to earth fast stone and also to trees and wellsprings. So that's the original in the, in the French penitential. There's many, many examples of that same basic concept. You should not do this anymore. Stay away from the springs and the stones. They're not sacred, only go to the church. But in this one case, the Anglo-Saxon translator added a little editorial line, which means as the witches teach. And that's just like amazing because it's showing that witches were practicing earth-based spirituality, mm -hmm. that people were treating them as wise women and spiritual authorities were learning from them. And that these were the kinds of, of spiritual ceremonies that were going on. And we have, we have authentication of that from other Anglo-Saxon sources, including some of the laws where they're talking about, you know, you should not go and do well weirding or tree weirding. And this word is related to the word for being, 
becoming and also related to the word for worship, worship, and so it was an act of reverence to the water, to the tree, to the stone, as the, the very power of mother nature, as she, was, she came forth in that place. And so they outlawed all this and people were doing it anyway and they continued, but maybe they would put the saint's name over the spring or they would do something else in order to give some cover because it was all being repressed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And do you think at the same time that during this time when there was all the, the female healers, were there, were there any male healers as well? Oh, yeah. 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 I'm not, I'm never saying that there weren't any women. I mean, that there weren't any men. There were, yeah. of course. And there was not, there was no rule, maybe with the exception of midwifery, that, you know, you had to be one sex or another. Mm-hmm. But there was a predominance of women, mm-hmm. especially in the healing profession and divination very often too. And this began to shift as, you know, after centuries and centuries of patriarchy and persecution, it became more and more dangerous for women. And you start to see an increase, for example, in number of male diviners happening in some places. So there are these shifts that, that take place. And, and you even have uh, some of the men denouncing the women to the Inquisition, which is what happened in some of the witch trials in the Alps and in, uh, there's a book that was written about this in, in Northeastern Italy in the Frioli region, there was a folk shamanic tradition of the Benandante, which means the good walkers, the ones who walk in the skies, who travel in the skies and who ward off negative influences from the communities, you know, especially in protection of their crops because these are farming villages. And so the inquisition gets the male Benandante to denounce the female Benandante as demonic. And they basically split right down the middle of the culture that way. And I wouldn't say that all the men went along with it, but some did, and that was all it took. And then when they had pretty much done away the women, they turned on the men and they tried them before the Inquisition. And basically they, they, that was the goal all along was to just basically crush this folk belief and practice, mm. get rid of it. And, and cover it over with some other, you know, Catholic saints or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of complexity of these stories. That's why my book is 16 volumes. I mean, I've, I've got one volume out so far and it's just, uh, there's, oh, wow. there's a lot more to go because, you know, I'm not trying to say this, this is a simplistic thing. Yeah. It's got a lot of detail and texture to it, but you can see these overall patterns where gradually women are driven out of priestesshood are driven out of the sphere of medicine, at least, I mean, you continue to see women of healers throughout the the burning times and after the burning times, but it becomes a lot more dangerous and a lot more fraught, Mm -hmm. you know, so that those women had to take precautions and even that wouldn't save them necessarily, you know, so it hurt not just those individual women, it hurt the whole culture. Yeah. It hurt the whole community. Yeah, that's, probably, that's why it's such a disconnect now, isn't it? People trying to yeah. get, figure out the herbs and stuff and what was what was used because mm-hmm. people know it was there. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, 
and you've got a lot of information online, don't don't you? And this the book the um the witches and the pagans is that the, the first book? That's the first volume I've published. Yeah, this is actually volume seven, technically, in this series. So the series is called Secret History of the Witches. You, you can look this up on the, uh, there's a tab for this on the sidebar of my website, suppresshistories.net. And you can, there's some excerpts. Some of the excerpts are kind of old. I've, I've re-edited a lot of them. But you can see the whole series and what's covered in it. In, you know, so like the, the, the volume I'm working on now is about the Hellenic world. And so the Pythias, the Melissae, and the Pharmakides, the, the snake women, the bee women, and the witches, among other things, sexual politics in the Greek world. And, and this, this is a really important part of the study because if we look at, if, just, if your question is what happened to women's spiritual leadership? You know, how did the priestess get banned? That's part of the thing. And the other part of it is, what, what function does witch hunting perform in enforcing patriarchy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in this book, which I'm working on now, I'm both covering positive traditions of goddesses and ceremonies, priestesses, uh, women's spiritual culture. And then side by side with that, I'm looking at patriarchy and colonization and slavery and the kinds of repression, including some witch trials. It's very interesting to see that there were actually witch trials among the ancient Greeks. It's not well documented. Uh, it's, there are chance mentions that tells us that that was going on. Okay. And, and with the Romans as well. And will you be publishing these books as well? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had hoped to have this one out by the end of the year. I'm not sure if I'm going to make that deadline or not. We'll see. But uh, yeah, I kind of got bogged down a little bit because I had to go back and do a lot of research about the Mycenaean period. It's like the roots of patriarchy in the Greek society. You know, this, this very domination-based culture that, you know, the whole, the whole story about the Trojan War is really interesting because not for the reasons that it has classically been, you know, great Western literature and oh, the wonderful, uh, the glory of the heroes who fight in battle you know, that's really a lot of the text of the Iliad mm-hmm. is, you know, glorifying the warrior. But at the same time, they are documenting that those warriors are seizing women as captives and making sex slaves out of them and selling them into slavery and trading them around from camp to camp. And the Iliad story frame is actually built around a conflict between two powerful men over who will possess the sex slave that one of them held and the other one took away. You know, there's this, uh, a a lot of the uh, action comes from the fact that this was going on and it's not presented at all from the point of view of the women. The voices of the women are really muted. Uh And, you know, so I'm teasing this out because I'm finding a lot of archeological evidence like in the linear B tablets, for example, of the fact that these same Mycenaeans were doing what the Iliad describes them as doing, which is taking women captive. Colonization of the female body is a big part of this. It would be, this is like a core aspect of patriarchy. And we got to understand this because it, it's going on in our world Yeah. with the sex trafficking and all of this. Yeah. Yeah, it's going on in various different ways, I think, isn't it? And not just the sex trafficking, yeah. I think just, yeah, like with all the advertising and all that marketing and all that as well. Most definitely. <laughs> Oh, I wouldn't ever just say it was just the sex trafficking. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's like, you know, the most blatant 
form that is really parallel to what was going on before. But even in, in the Greek period also, I mean, we have our pornified media, right? Mm-hmm. And they did too. One of the chapters that I'm working on is called uh, Myths of Conquest. And it's really about rape culture. Not just that the heroes who raped and all of the heroes, Her- Heracles and Theseus and all the Greek heroes, they're all rapists. The heroes of the Iliad, all rapists. You know, it, it says there, right there in the poem, you know, but also that the gods, all the gods are rapists as well. You know, the Olympians at any rate, uh-huh. you know, you could, you could have, you could make a positive masculine narrative for the Titans, the defeated old gods in, in those mythologies who don't engage in that behavior. Uh, Prometheus foremost amongst them. He actually uh, stands up as a defender of women. Well, is it one person, <laughs> one god? Yeah. Well, he kind of carries the load for the whole bunch of them. <laughs> um, and you've also you've got lots of um, courses and uh, you've got podcasts as well now, don't you? Yeah. So I have open access videos on my YouTube channel, which is Max Dashu, on on YouTube, and then I have now. Uh, there, there's a podcast series which is called History Sybil. That's audio. Mm-hmm. There's a blog which you can get the links for these from suppresshistories.net. And then the latest thing I'm doing is I have stream on demand. And so gradually I'm taking the, I do a live webcast at least one every month. Okay. And so I've been recording those for about 10 years. So I'm starting to edit those and put them up as stream on demand. Okay. And the one I'm working on just last night, I was started to edit is called Modern Images of the Witch. And it looks at that media representation of witches, both the demonization, but actually quite surprisingly, there's an amazing amount of the, the depiction of witches from say 1700 on that is positive, that is still describing them as healers and diviners. And you've got the witch's wand and the witch's cauldron and the flying witch and witches in relationship to animals. A lot of positive stuff survived alongside the green-faced, wart-chinned, <laughs> hag symbolism, you know, yeah. the Disney witches. There's still a romanticism, I think, around witches in, you know, like you still, I think there's that kind of image is still there though of, of um of a healer and stuff it's i don't think they don't think they managed to completely they did not they did not that's that's what's really truly stunning after centuries of iron and fire there's something there and it people are fascinated by witches Mm -hmm. i saw a costume there was a girl dressed up in 16th century robes right and she's bound but at this around the hem of her robe there was flames and she had a stake tied to the back of her, to her back. So it was basically, she's saying, you know, I'm the granddaughter of the witches, they burned. And it was, it was kind of cool. You know, so the pushback is, is happening there. Yeah. But we have to really watch out because the media representation, you know, there is, I think that the latest wrong turn is this really sexually objectifying idea of what a witch is. Mm-hmm. You know, with the pouting poses and yeah. you know, the huge yeah. breast and the little wasp waist and, the, you know, these ridiculously coy postures and sticking their breasts out and everything. I mean, sexuality is great, but what a narrow, what a narrow and self, self 
degrading way of, of picturing it, you know, and it's like, where, where are the fat women and where are the old women and where, are the, you know, there's just so much missing from it. There's no soul to it, mm-hmm. you know, and there are, I'm not saying that there's not a lot of great art because there is, but, you know, if you go on YouTube and you go just do an image search, when I was making the woman shaman DVD, I was, I was doing image searches because I wanted it to be very, very international. And so I'd be looking up medicine woman and female shaman and all these different terms. And what came up really made me gag. <laughs> you know, it was so bad. <laughs> Just constantly these thin, young, blonde chickies, you know, who were, you know, gazing out, you know, just like they were on, on a centerfold or something at, at the male gaze. And it's like, where's the potency? Where's the deep spiritual power and, and union? It's just not visible in those, you know, it's just like, you really got the wrong idea. <laughs> you know. <laughs> same thing for goddesses, same thing for priestesses, even, even Amazons. It's like, oh my gosh, just Google Amazon. Google image Amazon. <laughs> well, again, I wonder if that's coming from a patriarchal viewpoint though, isn't it? as well yeah yeah Yeah. it dies hard yeah but you know what never say die (laughs) we 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 are going to get through this it's just you know at this point it's become so destructive the whole planet is at stake uh the biosphere is at stake i think probably one of the big things is is that we've moved away from nature as well so there is quite there's that disconnect as well yeah it's all part of it yeah because these were nature-based practices, you know, it was yeah. based on reverence for earth. And then once that gets demonized and turned into some concept of devil worship, and there has to be some male figure that replaces it, that everybody has to bow down to, you know, yeah. then you separate people from something really primeval. And, you know, our own potency, there's a scientific thing that says that like out of all of our brain, we're only using like 10% of our capacity. And what are the other faculties that we have, you know, that some people have developed, you know, whether it's dreaming power or whatever it is, you know, that we have had bred out of us by the way we're socialized.